Senators, America, we need to exercise our common sense about what happened. Let's not get caught up in a lot of outlandish lawyers' theories here. Exercise your common sense about what just took place in our country. There was a moment last Saturday, the final day of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, when it seemed like the reckoning Republicans plainly fear was coming. We would like the opportunity to subpoena Congresswoman Herrera regarding her communications with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. We would be prepared to proceed by Zoom deposition of an hour or less. That's Jamie Raskin, Maryland congressman and the House Democrat serving as chief manager or prosecutor for the impeachment trial. After the main presentation phase had ended, Raskin shocked the Senate by requesting the power to subpoena witnesses and documents and make Republicans pay an even greater political price for voting to acquit the man responsible for the January 6th insurrection. We know Republicans were scared because, well, they absolutely lost their shit. None of these depositions should be done by Zoom. These depositions should be done in person, in my office, in Philadelphia. That's where they should be done. That's civil process. I don't know why you're laughing. It is civil process. When a bipartisan majority of senators agreed to Raskin's request, I thought back to something Ruth Ben-Ghiat told me on last week's show. Transparency is about showing respect and for the people you are governing. It's, it's a form of humility. It's showing respect for accountability because if you don't, have an accounting of past practices, history shows that people will do the same thing and more. But then, seemingly for no reason at all, Democrats balked. They wanted to call Republican Congresswoman Jamie Herrera Butler to testify. 55 senators voted to hear witnesses. Then after all that, the Senate decided not to call witnesses. What happened? Why vote yourself the power to expose Trump more thoroughly than ever before? on the biggest stage imaginable, and then not use it. It was a low moment, and a decision the Biden White House at some level must have supported. So now we're left to wonder, can there be a do-over? And would a party that surrendered a golden opportunity to tighten the vise of accountability on Trump even want one? After voting to acquit Trump, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell suggested that Trump might still face civil or criminal liability for things he did as president. Would Biden's Justice Department go for it? On Monday, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announced that Congress will establish a 9-11-style commission to investigate the insurrection. Will it have the power it needs to fully expose Trump's role? Can legislation creating such a commission even pass the Senate? My guest this week is John Dean. He's a fellow at the USC Annenberg Center on Communication Leadership and Policy, but he's most famous for being Richard Nixon's White House counsel, who got swept up in the Watergate conspiracy before turning on his boss and helping to end the presidency. We'll discuss where the push for accountability goes from here after the second Trump impeachment ended the way it did. I'm Brian Boitler. Welcome to Rubicon. Mr. Dean, great to have you on. Thank you. 
Uh, so did you follow along with the impeachment trial pretty closely over the last week or so? Very closely. Okay. So what went through your mind uh, when you when you heard that House impeachment managers had requested and been given permission to subpoena witnesses and testimony? And then what went through your head an hour later when Democrats balked and decided to proceed without any further evidence? I was dumbfounded that they had actually carried the vote with no less than Lindsey Graham joining in the vote. Uh, it, it was a surprise. Uh, the resolution was less than satisfactory, particularly when the uh, president's lawyers raised it as hearsay and not accepting the truth of the stipulation they'd agreed to, which was kind of a, a backdoor renege on the whole deal that they had gotten. Uh, but anyway, I, I did. I, I think that they should have had witnesses. I would have, in fact, put the whole thing in what's called a Rule 11 committee. This is a separate impeachment body that has been used for impeaching judges. It can't be used for impeaching presidents. However, there's no reason that a former president couldn't be treated like a judge. And a separate Rule 11 committee, which holds hearings, gathers evidence, and reports back to the Senate. And I think they could have taken the television cameras in there and marched in witness after witness and done it all summer long until the public got what was going on. And it was a missed opportunity because it would not have slowed down the Senate. I think that if the Republicans had balked and said, no, we don't want to do that, we don't want all that bad publicity uh, about what this Republican president has been doing, they could have very simply said, We'll have, let's go to a vote on it. And they had the votes. They might have had the votes to put it in a Rule 11 committee all along and not known it. But they decided not to do that. They feared it would detract from the Biden agenda. And so they obviously uh, did not do anything that was really fact-finding or an in-depth look. I, th I think it could have changed the, higher, the entire proceedings because people still don't get how serious that was. Uh, I want to zoom out for a second from the specifics of the tactical decisions that Democrats made in drawing the trial to a close uh, to, to your sort of broad view of this term accountability uh, that sort of suffused the whole trial. Um, I, my presumption is that your view on this subjective thing, accountability is shaped in, in large part by your backstory and your familiarity with this kind of style of dirty tricks authoritarian politics that has so much purchase in the GOP today. If you're new to the Watergate scandal, you may not appreciate how central Dean was to the whole thing. Dean was Nixon's White House counsel, the same position Don McGahn and Pat Cipollone held under Donald Trump. The White House counsel is supposed to protect the interests of the office of the presidency rather than the personal interests of the president himself. But when the president is a crook, that line can blur very quickly. In an enterprise like the Nixon or Trump presidency, the White House counsel isn't supposed to be a frontline troop who pulls dirty tricks. Someone like Roger Stone, who actually committed political crimes for both presidents. But that person is in a position to obstruct investigators and cover up wrongdoing. Before the Watergate scandal fully engulfed Nixon's presidency, the cover-up was on, and it seemed like it might work. 
in part because Nixon's allies pulled the same authoritarian tactics that marked the Trump era. Lying, scheming, buck-passing, and fake outrage. Mr. Haldeman, I think that uh, in, in light of the facts that are, are coming out, both you and I would agree that this went far beyond just a few men breaking into the Watergate. But rather, it's, uh, it's revealed a situation whereupon uh, everything that was touched was corroded. No, sir, I will not in any way, shape, or form ever accept that allegation or contention. And I think uh, that does a grave disservice to this country even to state it. I don't believe that anybody has one shred of evidence that he was knowledgeable of the break-in. Well, where is the check on the chief executive's inherent power as to where that power begins and ends? Well, I'm certainly not a constitutional lawyer, Senator. I don't know where the line is, Senator. One big difference between Dean and the rest of them? Dean ultimately knew where the line was and that they had crossed it and decided to come clean. Here's a piece of his testimony from the Watergate hearings. I began by telling the president that there was a cancer growing on the presidency. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. The authoritarian personality is not inclined to accept responsibility. They want to do their will and impose their will uh, without accountability. Add a little narcissism in there, and they want to do it in the spotlight, uh, which is what we've been through for the last four years. So uh, Republicans have become the party that tries to make everybody accountable for everything, excepting what Republicans do. Uh, look at Benghazi. It's something they try to impose on others, but not themselves. Have you developed a sense over over the years about why, at, at least in today's incarnation of the two parties, Republicans, as you say, will, will drag out uh, and sort of manufacture a scandal around something like Benghazi uh, and, and sort of beat it to death uh, for months, if not years, but you have a Democratic Party that doesn't have the same sort of taste for the jugular. And and given this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sort of expose Trump on the biggest possible stage, balks. Why, why, what accounts for that difference? Uh, as you know, I have written and studied at some depth uh, the authoritarian and personality uh, that was prompted first by being surrounded by them in the Nixon White House. And actually, those surrounding Nixon were probably more authoritarian than he was. Most of them have very little shame. So uh, to, uh, uh, to let this stuff just roll off their back doesn't trouble them in the slightest. And that's the, that's the big underlying issue we're dealing with. But that doesn't mean Democrats don't have a, an incredible opening right now to show this party for what it is and what it has done the last four years. And it will be a travesty if they don't. And I think that <laughs> Democrats can mount a, an effective investigation uh, to, or investigations, plural, and get to the bottom of a lot of this. You know, I, I'm thinking back to Watergate and, I, and it was so slow in the process before impeachment really became a serious 
undertaking. It was preceded by a lot of negative press. It was preceded by the Senate Watergate hearings, uh, which went on for months in a very public venue. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17th break-in strike at the very undergirding of our democracy. We will inquire into every fact and follow every lead, unrestrained by any fear of where that lead might ultimately take us. The special prosecutor's investigation by firing him uh, when he was trying to get Nixon's tapes that was the straw that broke the camel's back and started the drive towards impeachment. When Archibald Cox was fired at the so-called Saturday Night Massacre. Good evening. The country tonight is in the midst of what may be the most serious constitutional crisis in its history. The president has fired the special Watergate prosecutor, Archibald Cox, because of the president's actions. That happened over a weekend in October and the next Monday, there were something like 20 resolutions of impeachment introduced in the House. Uh, they didn't get a formal uh, resolution of impeachment uh, or an authorization until February of the next year. So they weren't, didn't rush into it even then. Uh, they just began quietly probing it. So that, that's a, actually an interesting analogy because I was going to ask you about after Nixon left office. Uh, my My sense from the reading is that Democrats were fairly emboldened, and there was a raft of reforms that Congress passed to try to prevent the next Nixon, and that the party didn't shy away from the concept of accountability. And I was going to ask you what's different, like what, what has changed about the party since then, um, but maybe the analogy is actually really kind of similar insofar as it took a few years from the emergence of the Watergate scandal for uh, for the the Democratic Party to really get its accountability juju right uh, and uh, and maybe something similar is happening today. It could be uh, the parties are very different today than they were uh, forty plus years ago when all that unfolded. The the Republican Party was a big tent party. They had a conservative element, they had a moderate element, and they had a very progressive element. So the people who were the holdouts for Nixon during Watergate are now the, you know, they're the core, they're, they're the entire rank and file of the Republican Party, as well as the leadership. So uh, they're just constituted differently. Now, have the Democrats changed? Uh, not as much. Uh, it, not as much. They just play by the rules. They're more interested in policy. They want to get things done. Uh, and they don't like these endless uh, process investigations, which the uh, Republicans thrive on. Because they, if, if, if you haven't noticed or your listeners uh, haven't noticed, Republicans can't govern very well. They don't have any policies. You know, tax cuts, tax cuts, more tax cuts, uh, and then opposing anything Democrats want is basically their policy. That has gotten worse rather than better uh, through the Trump presidency. But it's sort of, we now, we're seeing the Republican Party for what it really is. So that's the difference. The, 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 the Democrats want to get on with governing and doing things that affect uh, every American. 
the Republicans don't want to go there. So before we uh, zoom back to today, um, can you talk a little bit about the role that social censure played in changing behavior after Watergate? Like, what was it? Uh, was it generally understood that people who were implicated in Watergate were going to be persona non grata uh, in their professional communities, in their in their uh, home communities? And did did that have any lasting effect on how politicians or operatives conducted themselves? in the years afterwards? I think that the, the best example I can use is what happened with lawyers, uh, which is a clear profession. Uh, and it really stemmed directly from my Senate testimony, which rang a bell with the American Bar Association in Chicago. I'd prepared a list of who was implicated, and I just noticed at the time there sure are a lot of lawyers that got involved in this. I think there were like 11 on my sheet where I had put asterisk beside a list of names. And uh, one of the members of the Senate Watergate Committee, uh, Herman Talmadge of Georgia, uh, he asked what those were. And I said, it, I said, my God, how could so many lawyers have gotten in this mess? Uh, and that rang a bell with the American Bar Association. The American Bar Association created a study group to get get a develop a new model code for lawyers. So Watergate did have a lasting impact. But what's interesting is it in the last four or five years it has disintegrated uh, in the practice of law. Joe Biden is in the lead because of the fraudulent ballots, the illegal ballots that were produced and that were allowed to be used. All over the country to take a certain percentage of votes from President Trump and flip them to President Biden. It's most, and it's worst in a sense, is has been watching Trump's lawyers. They've led the way on how to get around the law. Uh, you've seen it in, uh, in the Department of Justice and Bill Barr, Pat Cipollone, have made terrible examples for lawyers. And I, that's one of the reasons I'm hopeful that post-Trump will have similar reforms because there were reforms not only in, in the legal profession, the whole standard and norms, for example, in the relationship of the White House to the Department of Justice were established post-Watergate. I understand roughly in a week, uh, they're gonna have the Merrick Garland hearings. And this will, some of this stuff may come up in 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 those uh, confirmation hearings about uh, the lasting impact of Watergate and getting back to the post-Watergate level where those norms are now going to have to be codified because it shows that they don't they, they won't last as norms. Right, I was going to say if if uh if the lawyers who were involved in the Trump years uh go back to practicing law just like nothing happened and these norms aren't codified, then it just seems like Democrats can uh, respect the the old norms for four or eight years, and then we'll just be right back where we started. That's right. And some of the, some states now where Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell went around with their outrageous cases to uh, perpetuate Trump's big lie that he'd won by a landslide. The question is, will the bar associations do anything? And that's going to be a test right now. 
if they don't, the legal profession has taken a dive. If they do start actually uh, enforcing the, uh, the codes of ethics, uh, there are going to be some lawyers in a lot of trouble. Coming up, the other tools of accountability. Commissions, committees, censures, and subpoenas. Which of these have teeth? And which don't require Republican votes? We'll get into that when we return. Rubicon is brought to you by Karyuma, the sustainable sneaker brand creating cool, seriously comfortable kicks in a way that's better for you and the planet. Demand for their EB sneakers was so high that the waiting list topped out at more than 20,000, but they're finally back in stock and available in a new water-repellent high-top style, the EB High. The EB is super lightweight and 100% vegan, made from bamboo, sugarcane, and recycled plastics. You know the feeling of walking barefoot in the grass? Karyuma designed their insoles to feel just like that, cushioned with sustainable cork, memory foam, and Mamona oil for all natural comfort. This is great for all shoe-wearing people, but I want to emphasize, especially to my fellow flat-footed listeners, that these insoles hold up really well, so the shoes are comfortable and durable while maintaining a sleek, low profile. Style and sustainability go hand-in-hand with Karyuma. That includes partnering with ethical factories, using low-impact natural materials, and even designing their own single-box, carbon-neutral shipping program. For every pair of sneakers sold, a pair of trees will be planted in the Brazilian rainforest, home to over 60% of the Amazon's ecosystem and endangered species. Karyuma ships free and fast in the USA and offers worldwide shipping and 60-day free returns. They use single-box recycled packaging for a carbon-neutral delivery to your front door. And Crooked listeners can get an exclusive 15% off your first pair of Karyuma sneakers. Go to C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Rubicon to get 15% off. That's C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Rubicon for 15% off today. Rubicon is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and grocery store trips, so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in about 30 minutes or less. Eating healthier has never been easier with low-cal, carb-smart, vegetarian, and pescatarian options every week. Every single recipe is packed with fresh produce sourced directly from farmers. HelloFresh is particularly useful if your partner is handier in the kitchen, but you want to contribute to the cooking as well. That is, if you're like me. My shipment this week included firecracker meatballs with roasted carrots and sesame rice, pork carnitas tacos with pickled onion and Monterey Jack, and balsamic tomato and herb chicken over buttery garlic spaghetti. I was able to cook all three and hold up my end of the bargain in between 30 and 40 minutes a dish. HelloFresh offers over 23 recipes featuring a range of flavors, cuisines, and ingredients so you'll never get bored. Try something new every week. HelloFresh's selection of delicious add-ons is getting bigger and better every week, featuring quick breakfasts and lunches, proteins, savory sides, and crave-worthy desserts. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Rubicon10 and use code Rubicon10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com forward slash Rubicon10 and use code Rubicon10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Rubicon is brought to you by Super Coffee. Super Coffee is the healthy, delicious alternative to sugary coffee drinks like Starbucks Frappuccinos and other iced coffee and energy drinks. Super Coffee is made to power your entire day with its unique combination of caffeine, healthy fats, and protein that provide a sustained, jitter-free energy with no crash. Did you know a Starbucks Frappuccino has 52 grams of sugar and 370 calories? That's like starting your day with a double cheeseburger. 
Super Coffee is just as delicious as a Frappuccino, but contains zero grams of sugar, 10 grams of protein, and only 80 calories per bottle. It's also keto-friendly, lactose-free, and gluten-free. Super Coffee's bestseller is their bottled coffees, but they also make tasty canned espressos, coffee creamers, and ground coffee. I discovered Super Coffee through a trainer at my gym about two or three years ago and keep a stash of regular and mocha bottles on hand for midday pick-me-ups, but the canned espressos are a game-changer for those of you who want something with a little more kick and a little less volume. Super Coffee was recently named the fastest-growing food and beverage brand in America by Inc. Magazine. Super Coffee has a 60-day money-back guarantee, meaning if you don't love it, you get your money back, no questions asked. We've worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 25% off your entire first purchase. If you're new to Super Coffee, I recommend one of their best-selling variety packs or bundles as a great way to try all of their delicious flavors. To claim this deal, go to drinksupercoffee.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout. Super Coffee is also available nationwide in over 25,000 stores like Target, Whole Foods, Walmart, Kroger, and CVS. Welcome back to Rubicon. My guest this week is John Dean. You probably know him best as Richard Nixon's White House counsel, who turned on Nixon and became a star witness in the Watergate hearings. But he's since become a vocal critic of the Republican Party. We're talking about how Democrats can and must hold the Trump administration accountable, even if they don't seem to have the stomach for it. So after disposing of the trial, Democrats announced that they will create or at least try to create an independent 9-11 style commission to investigate the Capitol insurrection. Is that the proper next step in your mind? It is an important step. Uh, And what this really means to me is not getting revenge against Trump. It's educating the American people about what the hell he was doing, how dangerous he and his followers are, how corrosive it is to democracy. And if we don't deal with it, what it's going to do to the country. And the first thing that sort of established Watergate was the name. Uh, As Bob Haldeman, uh, Nixon's chief of staff, told me during Watergate, he said, you know, John, Watergate's kind of like Teapot Dome. It's a catchy name. So the first thing to get through to the public is for that name to to attach. And and, and this is why and this is why the um, post Watergate reforms weren't just about, well, Nixon resigned, so we don't have to worry about another crooked president and we can just move on. They had reforms, the church committee and the and and various laws that they passed that reformed a bunch of how intelligence was shared with Congress uh, is because Watergate wasn't about just the the, the break in at the Watergate Hotel. It was about a, a whole strata of malfeasance underneath that that most people don't remember today, but that's why those reforms were passed. Absolutely. That's exactly right. I know right now, I, I noticed they're talking about the January 6th riot uh, commission. Uh, it, it, you know, some are calling it the, uh, the Trump insurrection, uh, the seditious insurrection. We don't have a label yet. And that's something that Democrats and the media should do and think about. Uh, that it's inclusive enough and has the same kind of uh, catchiness that Teapot Dome and Watergate have. Those those are effective labels, and we need something like that. So my concern with the commission, uh, taking your point that 
um, it should be well-branded, uh, is that you need a law to create a commission and Republicans through the filibuster have the power in the Senate to block it unless they can make sure that the commission is toothless or unless uh, they can assure that its remit includes investigating Antifa or allowing Kevin McCarthy to appoint Jim Jordan to the commission. Um, and so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on whether there are any sticks Democrats can use to assure that the that this thing comes into existence without being set up to fail. Well, first of all, commissions typically are fairly toothless. Uh, they don't do much. Uh, they, they do studies, rarely do they conduct public hearings that educate the public. It, it's clear that Nancy Pelosi has sort of stepped forward to fill the vacuum and she's not going to let these issues uh, just simply be put place under the rug and, and forgotten. Uh, she is trying to have it kind of both ways by creating a commission that can take it out of the Congress and proceed with this uh, is one solution. I th I, I'm more inclined to think that one of the reasons a Senate select committee would be effective is that uh, Schumer is much more inclined to probably have an aggressive investigation in the Senate. The Senate Select Committee that investigated Watergate really was a very effective educational uh, investigative tool. And that that they can do and not be blocked by the Republicans. And uh, while there, there would be equal membership, that's the way it was on the Senate Watergate Committee. The chair is controlled by the Democrats. And they... Uh, these are things aren't mutually exclusive, is what I'm trying to say. You could probably have some House committees that uh, where they have jurisdiction to look at it. Uh, but you're right. I think that the Republicans on a committee, on a commission, will try to uh, neuter it sufficiently that it really won't have much of an impact as far as educating the public and getting down to the nitty gritty. And they need to start soon. We're still, for example... Don McGahn was, was subpoenaed to testify before the original impeachment inquiry. That's still in the courts. That hasn't come out yet. Uh, and, uh, you know, somebody who decides to do what I did and blow it all up might be sitting around now and say, you know, it's, it's, I, I remained uh, quiet too long and come forward. And, and be a witness around which uh, they can build an understanding of what happened. It might seem far-fetched to think Trump allies like McGahn would suddenly come out of the woodwork and testify, like Dean did during Watergate. But Congress and the Justice Department may be able to compel them to in a couple ways. First, if prosecutors open or reopen investigations of any Trump-era crimes, uncooperative witnesses can be jailed and those who lie to investigators can face criminal charges of their own. But Congress also has its own subpoena power. And in concert with a cooperative Justice Department, it can make life very uncomfortable for reluctant witnesses. Witnesses who defy congressional subpoenas can be held in contempt of Congress, which is a tool Congress uses to enforce its own compulsory powers. The problem? Congress isn't a law enforcement agency. And getting someone to give teeth to those subpoenas is complicated. Contempt of Congress comes in three flavors. Inherent, 
civil, and criminal. Inherent contempt is when Congress sends the sergeant-at-arms to haul a witness in by force. Congress hasn't used its inherent contempt power in many decades, though after the Trump years, there's a strong argument we should revive it. Civil contempt is when Congress asks a judge to order a witness to testify. But as we saw during the Trump era, that process can wind its way through the courts for years. What about criminal contempt, though? That's when Congress asks the Justice Department to prosecute defiant witnesses. When Congress is investigating the sitting president, this power tends to wane. Is the Justice Department really going to train its own powers inward? Seek fines or jail time for its own within the executive branch? Just to give a competing branch of government a hand? Would Bill Barr ever really prosecute himself? But there's a new Justice Department in town. And if it takes an interest in prosecuting witnesses to Trump-era crimes when they defy congressional subpoenas, those witnesses might suddenly decide to stop resisting. It's something for Rudy to think about, anyhow. You're right. That, that's absolutely right on. In fact, if I had a magic wand, the first thing I would have happen in Washington is for Congress to get its subpoena power in order. It has inherent contempt powers. No one knows how far those reach. They should be enacting into law. They've got the control of both houses and the White House. They can adopt it so that they actually can effectively hold investigations. And that's that's something that should have happened yesterday. And they should be devoting every bit of attention they have, all the committees, to being able to actually get witnesses and force them to testify. So Joe Biden did a town hall on Tuesday, and he said... I don't, I'm tired of talking about Donald Trump. I don't want to talk about him anymore. But What do you make of that? And can Biden play an appropriate and necessary role as an agent of accountability if he's simultaneously sort of operating with the goal of trying to push Trump out of the spotlight? Well, if if you recall what he did after making that statement at his news conference, he turned around and started talking about Trump. Uh, <laughs> if, we, if we try to sweep Trump under the rug and try to ignore him, uh, it will only compound the circumstances and situations he's left us in. These things need to be addressed. Uh, I can appreciate why Biden doesn't want them addressed, but if they don't address them, they will haunt us. There was some of that post-Watergate where Jerry Ford, one of the reasons he pardoned Nixon was to make it disappear because he was getting lots of questions about uh, this document, that document, what should be revealed, what shouldn't be revealed. And he said, God, I'm just sick of this and it's just messing up my ability to govern. Well, that's true. And part of the reasons that we have a Trump is not everything was cleaned up uh, during Nixon. Many of the issues that came up when you had another president who didn't want to play by the rules was the rules hadn't all been established and set up. Some of it was as left as norms, uh, what seemed appropriate, what was inappropriate. Uh, but some of those could have well, if they'd have continued pursuing them, have ended up as laws and made it much more difficult for Trump to undertake the activities he did. Uh, I'm one who thinks it'll be a disastrous mistake if we don't look hard at what Trump did because he is a threat to democracy. 
If you were advising Biden, what would you tell him about how he should balance his positive vision, his desire to govern with these uh, more Trump-centric questions of truth and disclosure and, and protecting democracy? I'd advise him to just keep governing as he is doing right now and let the media and the public uh, deal with these other issues in Trump. It's not going to go away. If Trump is indicted in Georgia, do you think that the news media is going to ignore it that day? Of course not. They can't. Uh, people are interested. It's why, why they exist to report this kind of thing. And I think that Biden, has what he's got to do is explain to people that we need to get this kind of behavior out of our system. And we need to take people who think this is acceptable behavior and get them back under rocks where they lived for so long. And that's about as far as they should be advanced uh, in a modern democracy. Final question. Have you ever thought about what the world would look like if 45 years ago you had not gone public, the Republican Party had decided to protect Nixon at all costs, he had not resigned, he survived his impeachment, uh, and Congress had not passed post-Watergate reforms. Where would that have led? Uh, to a very unhealthy place. Uh, democracy as we know it would probably be long gone. Uh, democracy is something that has to constantly be attended to. It, it just doesn't work automatically. Uh, if, if you have a dominant interest that is cheating to control the system, uh, that doesn't work so well for those who play by the rules. Nixon was somebody who didn't play by the rules. Uh, he uh, was not anywhere near as bad as Donald Trump, however. So it's gotten worse. And by ignoring it, we will again uh, live to regret it. I'll leave it there then. Uh, John Dean, thank you for your time and your insight. My pleasure. Keep sending us your questions. Our email is rubicon at crooked.com. Listener Michael writes in, what is the responsible way for the Dems to exploit fractures in the GOP without inadvertently raising the profiles of extreme right-wing primary challengers? This is always a tough balance to strike and it doesn't always work out well. The theory is that more extreme candidates have a harder time winning statewide or national elections. So if you can coax your opposition into nominating someone from the fringes, you stand a better chance of winning in the end. And more often than not, that theory is true. It worked out great for Dems in the 2012 Missouri Senate race when incumbent Democrat Claire McCaskill helped elevate the profile of the most right-wing Republican Senate candidate running in the GOP primary a guy named Todd Aiken, who once claimed that women will miscarry pregnancies stemming from rape, but only if the rape is quote-unquote legitimate. Republicans nominated him, and he lost. Years later, Democrats even won a special Senate election in the deep red, deep south state of Alabama, after Republicans nominated a nasty racist and accused sexual predator named Roy Moore to their ticket. But they tried the same thing in the 2016 cycle on a much larger stage, when a seemingly unelectable guy named Donald Trump entered the Republican presidential primary. And, well... Ultimately, though, the fact that Republicans have become so extreme isn't Democrats' fault. And the responsibility for the consequences of that extremism 
lies with the people and institutions in and around the GOP who intentionally radicalize their supporters with lies and propaganda for power and profit. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer. Production support from Brian Semmel. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.